morning. That was a bit of a poor good morning, wasn't it? Should we try it again? Good morning. morning. That sounds a little bit better. I don't know, this is only my second month, so I don't know if any of you are new here today. Don't worry if you are, I'm not going to call you out, but just so you know, my name's Wayne. Uh, I'm one of the ministers at Billericay Baptist Church, and my role is the church pastor. And as we were singing that song, To Be In Your Presence, I just had this picture of being a kid again, just resting, as my, my dad has given me a, a, well, we call it in Wales, a kutch. It means cuddle. It's a kutch, it's a hug. But it's better than a cuddle or a hug. It's, it's, it's a, a heart thing, it's a kutch. And I just had, had the sudden thought of, when I was a child, uh, and my dad was kutching me, my dad was holding me, uh, as a child, that felt lovely. And I felt at peace, I felt at rest, it was amazing. But I've been privileged and blessed to have two children of my own. And when they were younger, and even now, at 11 and 14, when I cutch them, that blesses my heart as well. And so this, that, that, as we were singing that song, that, that thought process went through my head that it's wonderful to be in God's presence, not rush away and to sit at his feet and just to be held by him. And it does us so much good. But it also does him good. It does something to God as well, as, as a father holds his children. So when you, you're next in God's presence, which I hope and pray is on a regular basis, I hope you don't just leave it for a Sunday uh, morning, but when you're next in God's presence, as you realise the, the good that that's doing to you, just realise that how much God is smiling and just, ah, oh, this is, this is lovely. Because my son, my daughter, is choosing intentionally to be in my presence. Last week, when I was preaching at Perry Street, I, I shared a story that confirmed that we all hurry. And I, I shared a story that somebody the other Friday saw me in Billericay High Street and they wanted to come over and say hello and introduce me to somebody that they had with them, only they didn't because they could see I was in a hurry. The irony is not lost on me. Your church pastor preaching on ruthlessly eliminating hurry from our lives was seen hurrying at Billericay High Street. But it's also, it's dangerous to hurry. Because on that same day, not only was I hurrying through my day, but I went to the supermarket to buy more stuff. Because we had some people uh, coming back to our house after my induction, so that tells you when it was, it was the end of January. We had stuff, but I felt on that Friday we needed more stuff. And so I hurried to Waitrose. Other supermarkets are also available, I just want to say. And I bought more stuff, and as I was walking back to my car, I fell. Straight down, because I was holding the bags. So I didn't want to lose my stuff and let it go and break my fall, I fell straight down. And I, I think I've, I've bruised some of my ribs. They're a lot better now than they were. But here's the thing. When I fell, I was buying more stuff that I really didn't need. And if I'd been living a simpler life, I would not have fallen because I would not have been at the supermarket. And this morning we continue our sermon series, Start As We Mean To Go On, And we're looking at 
the John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, are some of those biblical themes that are there. And today we're going to be looking at the spiritual discipline, the way of life of simplicity. When I was a student minister in South Wales, in a church uh, called Sardis Baptist Chapel in Resolvent, just outside Neath in South Wales. If you think I've never heard of either of those places, it's not far from Swansea. Hopefully you've heard of Swansea. If you haven't, the door's by there, I'm just saying. (laughs) But every evening, every Sunday evening, we used to have a prayer meeting before the evening service at 5.40. The service was at half past six. And we we would, a number of us would gather uh, to pray. And I was a student minister there for a year. And there was a lovely Christian lady who used to pray every week, and her prayers were great, they were a little bit long, but they were great. But every week she would pray about lots of other things, but she'd always come back to the same prayer. She'd pray in a lovely, strong Welsh accent, and I'll try and do the accent for you, I'll call all of my, my homeland. She used to say, Oh Lord Jesus, give us our needs, not our wants. Give us our needs, not our wants. Every single week she would pray that and in truth we all need to pray that on a daily basis don't we Lord give us our needs not our wants because we live in a world where want has gone from something uh, we would like to something we have somehow convinced ourselves that we need my eldest niece will be 22 next month, and that makes me feel quite old. But anyway, I was only six when she was born, but you know, I wish. When she was about three, we had a dog called Bron. Bronwyn. You see the Welsh theme going on throughout my life, can't you? And she was there, and she was putting her, her hand in front of the dog's mouth because she wanted the dog to lick her hand. She wanted the dog to give her a kiss. And the dog wasn't playing ball. The dog was like that. Oh, you could see the dog hanging, you're a toddler, I I don't know where your hands have been, I don't want to lick that. (laughs) And I'm thinking, you're a dog, where have you been, you know? And she was getting frustrated and she looked at me with pain in her eyes. She said, Uncle Wayne, I need Bron Bron to kiss my finger. 19 years ago, she said that. And it has stuck with me ever since. I said to her, darling, you don't need Bron Bron to kiss your finger. You want Bron Bron to kiss your finger. In truth, we have convinced ourselves that our wants are actually needs that we have in life. And in truth, convincing this in our lives has always been a condition of being human. But it's got worse, I think, because there was a time when we used to live simpler lives. You can probably remember a time when you lived simpler lives, when you made do with what you had. Look at programs such as Call the Midwife. That's that's as much about social history as it is about midwifery. And throughout, as the years go by in each series... You can see the tipping of the scales between want and need as the years roll by. And when did that change? 
Well, it probably changed after the Second World War as advertising changed. You see, before then, adverts were simply giving facts. If you buy this and you do that, it will do that. But advertisers locked on to the fact that actually, if we start to convince the human being that, that they need these things, even though they don't, we'll sell more and we'll make more money and the world will be rebuilt. And it was then that they started to convince us that the things we wanted in life, the things we desired in life, were actually things that we felt we needed. Now apparently, the average person sees around 4,000 adverts a day. I don't know whether that figure is true, but it's a lot. If you think of buses, bus stops, TV, magazines, if you've got phones come up everywhere... There are adverts. And billions are spent on advertising because it works on a subconscious level to get us to buy more stuff. Supermarkets spend vast amounts of time on what they call product placement. So the high-ticket items are placed at eye level. That's why the cheap wine is on the bottom shelf. Because they don't want you to buy the cheap wine. They want you to buy the expensive wine that's mainly at high level. It's why they have the the bog-off, the buy-one-get-one-free deals. My mum, when she was alive, was a sucker for a bog-off, I tell you. She would come home and she'd have these things. She'd go, look, I bought one and I got one free. I'd say, but you didn't need one of them, let alone two of them. (laughs) Yeah, but the second one was free. I said, you... I didn't call her a fool because she would have hit me, but I said, but mother, you've now spent money on something you didn't know that you needed, but they've convinced you that you felt you needed it. We fill our lives with more and more stuff. And then we go and buy more and we fall over in supermarket car parks. Someone has said atheism hasn't replaced Christianity. Shopping has. Go to Lakeside, Bluewater, Westfield, Basildon, Billericay High Street on a Sunday and you will see people's God that they worship. The shopping centres have become the new cathedrals and people worship the God of want and excess when they go there to worship. The sole reason the National Lottery has done so well because it taps into the idea that the more money someone has, the happier they will be. And so people fantasise about what they would do if they won the lottery. We believe the lie, more money and more stuff equals more happiness. It doesn't. There is a caveat here, though. Because if someone is genuinely poor, more money will make them slightly happier because you have less worries. And you can pay for those basic needs. That's not what I'm talking about today. Because studies have shown that after a certain amount of money, you do not get any happier. If anything, you may even decline in your happiness because when it comes to, to getting more, it often means more pressures, more responsibilities, more stress, and so on. Think about it. Even when you see people have won astronomical amounts of money on the lottery, you see how a few years later they're extremely unhappy. There's been factions in their families and that massive amount of money has caused them far more problems. And some of you may think, well, that's all right. I'm of an age where these kind of things don't, 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 don't come anywhere near me. I'm exempt from that. Well, I want to say you're not exempt from it. 
Someone in a, in a previous church of ours was in her 80s, lived on her own, and she had so many products that she bought from Reader's Digest, you couldn't move in her little flat. And when somebody tried to clear, help her clear that stuff out, she convinced herself, she said, you can't, I, I need those things. When was the last time you used it? That's not important. I need those things. We cleared out my mum's attic when she moved many, many years ago. We filled a whole double bedroom, sort of this height, with stuff from sort of 20-odd years of stuff in the attic. I was quite ruthless, wanting to chuck some of this stuff out or give it to a charity shop. She goes, I might need that way. I said, Mother, it's been at the attic since 1974. It's 1997 now. What do you mean you need it? She had a box of broken cars that were mine when I was a child, shoved up the attic. I went to chuck them. She said, yeah, but if you have a son or a daughter, they might want those. I said, mother, I'd buy them one that's got four wheels, not two. (laughs) She convinced herself that all of this clutter, all of this stuff, she needed. In our last church in Portsmouth, not long before we moved here, we visited a lady Close to 90. She watched two channels on the TV. The God Channel and the QVC Shopping Channel. She had all these deliveries come in every single day. Her children were despairing that she was going through their inheritance at a rate of knots. She said, but they don't realise I need these things didn't need any of it. She wanted them. And she convinced herself that that was a need. And many people define happiness as making lots of money and owning lots of stuff. Someone who is no longer alive still holds the world record for owning the most pairs of shoes. Do you want to have a guess how many pairs of shoes this woman owned? 16,400 pairs of shoes. The average woman owns 34 pairs of shoes. Men, we're not exempt. The average man owns 18 pairs of shoes. While it's not 16,400, it's still a lot of shoes. The bottom line is, we don't live simply anymore. We used to, though. There was a time when we only bought things out of need as opposed to desires or wants. You probably don't live as simply as you did as a child. It's not just shoes either. We change our cars more frequently than we used to. People who have these things, smartphones, will queue for hours to get their hands on the newest phone just because it's new. There's nothing wrong with the old one, but they want a new one. And they've convinced themselves that they need that. Our cultural trend is to always want more, to buy more, to get feel hard done by when we can't get more, to live for the more. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong in having nice things. It's the state of our heart in those things that we need to challenge. It's our dependency on those things. It's allowing those things to become our gods. It's, our, it's convincing ourselves of our wants that there are needs. Nothing wrong with owning shoes. I'm glad you've all got shoes on. Some of your feet may not be that, you know. 
But no one needs 16,400 pairs of shoes. Ladies, nobody, you don't need 34. Gents, we don't need 18. So what is this spiritual discipline of simplicity? John Mark Comer explains, simplicity isn't a style, it isn't poverty, it's not about earning a good wage, it's not about having nice things. It isn't about living with nothing, it's about living with less. And being truly contented with the less. As the Apostle Paul talks about to the Philippians, he has learned to be content whether in need or in plenty. He's learned that spiritual discipline of simplicity. And like, and this, like all the discipline, goes against the flow of society. We're bombarded with, we, we, we need these things, and it's part of our DNA. On Thursday, we went to the theatre as a family. And before we went, I went to the shops to buy our sweets and chocolate, because I'm not paying the astronomical prices you know, I'm a cheapskate. I'm not, I'm not paying, you know, five pounds for a bag of sweets or whatever it is. And as I was there, I looked at the shelves and there were a bag of Revels and there was a bag of Minstrels, both on sale. I bought both. I couldn't make my mind up. I bought both. And I took both. I didn't eat them all. I didn't share them either, but I took both. <laughs> If you got on the train coming home and I offered the kids a minstrel, my wife said, I didn't see those coming out of your pocket when we were in the theatre. I said, do you want to disturb the other guests, you know? I just couldn't help myself. Because living with the spiritual discipline of simplicity is not easy. Let's stay with Paul for a moment. We see in Romans 12, he says these words, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Eugene Peterson paraphrased from the, this verse this way from the message, Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. When we just live for our wants and desires, we're fitting into the world without giving it a second thought. And living with simplicity challenges that and goes against that. So what did Jesus say about this? He spoke a lot about money. And in the passage I'd read to us from Matthew 6, we see Jesus speaking about money in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, this sermon was a bit like Jesus' manifesto. Only he stuck to it, unlike some political parties of the day. And the fact that how we spend money and what our relationship to money and things should be makes it into the Sermon on the Mount should cause us to stand up and take notice. So let's break these verses down a bit. First, Jesus says, as, as, we, as we had read to us, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is calling, calling us to, to, to live a life of simplicity. He isn't telling us not to have stuff, not to go on holiday, not to have a car, not to have a pair of shoes and so on. But he is telling us not to store up treasures, not to regard what we have as, as the things that are important in life. He's telling us that having 34 pairs of shoes is probably a bit excessive. You can't wear them all at the same time, can you? 
He's asking us to consider what we buy, to never buy on impulse. To ask ourselves, do we really need it? John Mark Combe and other people who've taught on this subject have spoken about having a time period. A pause between you wanting to buy something and actually buying it. And the more expensive the thing that you want to buy, the longer the pause should be. And during that period, he says, pray about it. Does God really want you to have this in your life? Does it have his blessing? You see, God made the world for us to enjoy it, but we want to enjoy it with the things that have his blessings. If you think of it, right back in the beginning, in the world uh, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, probably the most spectacular place ever. And they can have anything that they want. It's all laid out for them. Just don't eat fruit from that tree in the middle. What did they do? They convinced themselves they needed fruit from that tree. They had all the other fruit, but they wanted that one. Because it's part of what it is to be human that we convince ourselves what we want, we need. And if somebody tells us we can't have it, we feel we need it even more, don't we? This passage from Matthew, Jesus hits us with the line, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. If you really think about that, that's a powerful passage of Scripture, a powerful line. Do you have things that you love? Things that have your heart? You know, a car that you you simply love. Somebody working harder and more hours to buy a house that you want, or a designer handbag or coat or shirt. Jesus is saying, where you put your resources, that is what has your heart. And if it's on things, then it's not going to bring you life. Because those things can break and rust, they can be stolen, they won't last forever. But put your energy, invest your life into the things that matter, into your relationship with God, and you'll be doing okay. Jesus then goes on to say, the eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? To us, it's a strange dialogue in this passage from Jesus. We need to put ourselves into the first century that Jesus lived in because a healthy eye had two meanings. Firstly, it meant you were intentional, you were focused in your life and you were living well. And secondly, it meant you were generous to the poor. So you didn't just look at all the nice stuff and accumulate all these things for yourself, but you looked around and you saw who was in need and you helped them out. Jesus is saying, when we live simpler lives, we will we'll have margin. So we can help those who really need things. But when we just accumulate more and more, we're living in an unhealthy way and we don't have anything left to give to those in need. And actually our eyes are so bad, we don't even see the need that's around us. And then Jesus gives us the punchline. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Wow, that's that's quite powerful. Right there. Because in this verse, Jesus is referring to money as a God. He's asking us to choose. Jesus calls out this God by name. It's called Mammon. 
the God of riches, of excess stuff, of money. And Jesus is simply explaining to us that we have to choose. Because you cannot serve the God of mammon and the God of life. They just don't go together. Because he's already said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. I wonder what would worry you more. If you lost your phone, or if you lost your Bible. You may be thinking, oh, I have got a phone. I only turn it on every now and again. It's fine, it doesn't bother me at all. Okay. Or you lose your keys to the house. Lose the keys to your car. That lovely coat that you always like because it just makes you feel special. Those shoes that are, you know, shoes that are so comfortable, they're like a pair of slippers on the, you wear them outside. What if you lost those things? Which would you worry more about? Which would you spend more of your energies looking for that, or if you lost God's word? You cannot serve both God and money. And the reason Jesus is showing us this in his life, the reason Paul showed us in his life that we cannot worship them both and that choosing to worship God is a better option is because that is the option that will give us life. And life in all its fullness. And we also need to see with Jesus and all of his teachings and especially about money, he's not, he's not being that prescriptive. He's not commanding He's just pointing out that we can't do these things. So his teaching on money and living with simplicity in our lives is not so much a command, but simply pointing it out. So he, say, he doesn't say, you must not serve two masters, God and money. He simply says, you can't do it. It's a bit like saying, he's not saying, you wouldn't say, you must not push water uphill. He's saying, well, you can't. It's, it defies the law of, of gravity and physics. And he's just saying, you, you, you can't do it. You might try, but, but it's impossible. In Luke, he, Jesus doesn't say, you can't have an abundance of possessions. He simply says, you will not find life in an abundance of possessions. You see, simplicity is not so much a command, but rather it's a way of life, a rule of life, a spiritual discipline through which you will live well, life in all its fullness, because you'll draw closer to God through it. So for us, we have a simple choice. Do we want more stuff that we don't need, or do we want this full life? And for you, the link between simplicity and hurry is that when you worship the God of money, you hurry through life to earn more, to buy more, to fill your lives with more stuff. And friends, whether you're working or whether you're retired, it makes no difference. We all struggle with this one. And often on a very loose subconscious level, I, I, recently I was talking to somebody and they said a very innocuous thing to me when they saw that I drove a Vauxhall car in the part of the world where Ford is king. You know? They were retired. They used to work for Fords. And they said to me in a jokey way, the only thing I, a problem I've got with you is that you drive a Vauxhall car. So that means you're not adding to my pension pot. They said it as a joke, and I took it as a joke. Don't now go away thinking, who said that? Who's retired, who works for Ford? Could be one of you here, it's not any of you here. They didn't mean anything by it, I knew that. But can you see, that's the way the world works. 
That's the way the God of Mammon works. It's very innocent, very subconscious. Again, I'm not saying wages or pensions are bad. Of course they're not. There's a certain amount of this stuff that we do genuinely need. But the danger comes when we worship that more than we worship God. So as I close, ask yourself, check yourself on this one. Where and what do you give your energies to? Do you fill your life with more and more stuff? And when you do that, it'll get in the way of a walk of God. It'll clutter up your heart. And in doing so, it'll stop you seeing things as God would have you see them. So unhurry your life. So that you can be still and know the true God, as opposed to the false God of money and stuff. John, John, could you come back up and just start? And you know what? When we do that as a church... We'll have our eyes open to the things that God wants us to see. The things that he wants us to spend our church budgets on. In those budgets, we'll be directed by God as opposed to being constrained by the God of money. And one last thing. Because in this passage, if you read the next verse from what Jesus has said in Matthew 6, you'll read, Therefore I tell you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. When we live with a spiritual discipline of simplicity, we worry less. It's good for your health. Don't fall over in white trucks to start with. Stop rushing around, trying to gather more things. Jesus says, when we follow his way of life, when it comes to money and the material aspect of life, we do not worry because we hand it all over to Him. Isn't that a better way to live? Let's try and live that way. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the way he, His teaching was so amazing, so on point, so relevant whatever age we live in. Father, I ask that the, the lie of the enemy won't, won't come in and destroy our thinking, won't come in and, and give us that sense of false guilt of any possessions we have, but that your heart, your word will come in and just gently lead and guide us in this area so that we serve you and you alone help us to be practical about it that when we, we, we want to buy a, a, a purchase that we don't necessarily need we do bring it before you in prayer we, we pause we sit in your presence and we ask do you want this for us because Father you are interested in every area every aspect of our life So may we simply come. Simply come before you, longing just to bring something from us that will bless your heart because of the way we're living, because we're we're living with this discipline and simplicity. We're, We're serving you and you alone. Help us, Father, we pray. Through your Son, Jesus, we ask. Amen. We're going to sing the song that Joan is 
playing is called When the Music Fades. All is stripped away and I, I simply come. Longing just to bring something that's a work that will bless your heart. You may or may not know when Matt Redmond wrote this song. He wrote it at a time when his uh, church pastor felt that they got too so consumed with all the trappings that the church has today. All the tra- trappings of, you know, a, a big band and PAs and lights and goodness knows what. And he stopped all sun worship for a period of time in their church. And Matt Redmond thought, I'm a worship pastor. What, how, what do I do now? And at the end of that season, this is the song he wrote, when the music fades, all is stripped away and I simply come. Friends, simplicity means we don't get caught up with the trappings of the world, whatever they may be. And we simply come before God and bring ourselves. That's all he wants. If it's for us to bring ourselves. Let's stand. Let's close as we sing this together. <laughs>